Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 14. It's on page 892 in your pew Bible. Romans chapter 14. Again, I want to wish all you dads a happy Father's Day. And as I look out and see so many uh, children here as well, I commend you fathers for bringing your families to church. Uh, it sends a message to your children that this is the Lord's Day first, Father's Day second. We are teaching our kids that God is ultimate, not man. And so as we seek to raise our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, we lead not only by exhortation but by example. So I commend you men for being here this morning with your families. You know, as I woke up this morning, I heard what I've been hearing just about every morning uh, from about 4.30 to 5 o'clock a.m., and that is birds chirping very loudly. Uh, they've been waking you up as well, yeah? It's better than an alarm clock, I have to say. It, it's, a, it's a very pretty way to wake up. And I just started wondering, why are they so loud in the morning? Like, why not later in the day? And uh, so I actually looked it up, and uh, come to find out there's, there are a few different theories regarding that that I won't bo uh, bother going into, but one thing uh, that uh, is agreed across the board on with, um, orth with orthonologists is that, um, that males are the predominant ones that you are hearing chirping. And uh, as I thought about it, I thought, like, why are males the predominant ones that are chirping, and there's two primary reasons. One is, is to attract females, uh, potential mates. And, but the main reason is, is they're staking out their territory. They're staking out their territory. And I thought, you know, as, as we come together to sing, and I think about the men in particular, sometimes men are more reticent uh, to sing, and, and ladies are more eager to sing out. I want to challenge you men uh, to sing to the glory of God, because when we do that, we, in a very real way, are staking out territory for God. We are sending a message to the enemy that our hearts, our homes, and our church belong to the Lord. So when we sing a song like we just sang, the Lord being our Redeemer, um, our refuge, our fortress, um, our deliverer, uh, we are reminding ourselves, our wives, our kids, the world at large, that the Lord is our hope. And uh, so I want to encourage you just to sing out to the glory of God. One ornithologist wrote, If you can sing loud and strong in the early morning before you have time to warm up and have a good hearty breakfast, the better mate and stronger defender of your territory you will be. Now, if that's true of birds, isn't it true of us as men? So brothers, sing out to the glory of God. It's not about how great your voice is. It's about how great your God is. Amen? With that in mind, let's look at Romans 14. In this last major section of the epistle, the epistle to the Romans, Paul spells out in chapters 12 to 16 the practical implications of the gospel that he has explained in chapters 1 to 11. Uh, Paul, in chapters 12 to 16, makes a decisive shift from doctrine to duty, from principle to practice, from beliefs 
to behavior, from learning the gospel to living the gospel. And the point is that God's revelation to us should produce a grateful response from us. And as we see in the very first two verses of chapter 12, that uh, response of gratitude begins with the dedication of our whole selves to God. What we do in our bodies. That's why Paul says, I urge you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, because of all that God has done for us in Christ, that you present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice holy, acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Others' translations say that it is your reasonable service. In other words, in light of all that God has done for us, it is the only appropriate response to Him. And that's why He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds that you may prove that God's will is good and acceptable and perfect. And so that's how Paul makes this shift from learning the gospel to living the gospel. He's spelling out their practical implications. And it begins with the dedication of your whole self to God. And that dedication demonstrates itself by how we use our bodies to serve others. Remember we talked about that, that as a result of God's mercies toward him, Paul's debt was to God, but his payment was to people. And so we demonstrate our dedication to God by devoting ourselves in service to one another. And that's why Paul says in verses 3 to 8 of Romans 12, we though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And Paul goes on to list uh, some representative gifts and, and says, hey, if you are gifted to lead, then lead. If you are given the gift of speech, then exhort people. If you have the gift of mercy, then show mercy. Do acts of kindness toward other people. If you have faith, exercise it. So we are to use our gifts to build up the body of Christ, and that is how we show our devotion to God. But then Paul says, but be careful, because it's possible to go through the motions of service without actually being motivated by love. And so beginning in Romans 12, verse 9, Paul says, let love be genuine. And Paul goes on to show how this genuine love for God and others is to express itself first to believers, to our fellow believers, but not only to them, but also to the unbelievers all around us. And those unbelievers include even the governing authorities that God has placed over us. And Paul talks about that right into chapter 13. And Paul concludes chapter 13 by reiterating our obligation to love others. Paul says that we are debtors of love. We are to pay that debt to other people. We're debtors to God, but our payments are to people. And Paul says, do not delay in showing such love because the Lord could return at any time. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Every day we're one day closer to heaven. And so live accordingly. Well, now in chapter 14 that we started last week, Paul begins talking about impediments to Christian love. Uh, so we've dedicated our whole selves to God. We're, we're demonstrating that 
dedication by our service to one another. We want to be careful to love one another genuinely, not just going through the motions of service. And we're to love believers, unbelievers, including the governing authorities God has placed over us. And we need to be have a sense of urgency about this because the Lord could return at any time. But as we're going about this business of loving others as God has loved us, Paul says, now there's going to be certain hindrances certain impediments, certain barriers that are going to get in the way of that love if you're not careful. So we as believers, we're we're traveling along the highway of Christian unity, as it were, and there's going to be certain roadblocks that get in our way. Roadblocks that must be removed if we are to continue our journey together on the pathway to Christian unity. And here's one of the barriers disagreements that arise over secondary issues. It's not to say that they're not significant. It's simply saying that these are issues that carry a certain amount of importance to us, but are not clearly addressed in Scripture regarding what you should do or not do about those issues. There are not clear directives in Scriptures, but there are things that we feel strongly about. Uh, Some people, uh, their consciences are more restrictive and they feel that they should not do certain things or they should do certain things, even though those things are not clearly spelled out in scriptures regarding exactly what you should do or not do. Other people have a greater sense of freedom. They think it's perfectly fine to do certain things or not do certain things that are not clearly spelled out in scripture. And so those are those who have a stronger faith in the sense they have a greater sense of freedom in Christ. And Paul says it's, The disagreement is not the primary problem. We're bound to have disagreements among such a diverse body of Christ. The problem arises over how we treat one another in the midst of those disagreements. Uh, If you have more freedom, don't look down, Paul says, on believers who have a more restrictive conscience, thinking of them as narrow-minded, self-righteous prudes. If you're the one with a more restrictive conscience regarding certain things, don't look on those who seem to have a greater sense of freedom and accuse them of being, uh, you know, uh, uh, morally uh, averse uh, as libertines, as those who don't care about serving the Lord. Paul says that's not the case at all. There's, there's certain biblical principles that uphold these instructions, not to look down on each other, not to pass judgment on one another, not to criticize one another. Do you remember what those principles were? We laid them out last week at the end of the message. It's that God welcomes all believers. God is able to make every believer stand. Uh, God upholds every believer. God is sovereign over every believer, and therefore God alone will judge every believer. So don't you worry about it. Don't usurp the role of God as if you stand in judgment over your brother or sister. And now, continuing on in the second half of Romans 14, having provided that overview, let's look at Romans 14, verses 13 to 23, our text for today. Paul says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, 
But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is not good to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. As I was mulling over this text, a certain movie came to mind. The movie Spider-Man. Now, there have been a lot of Spider-Man movies over the years, but I'm talking about the Spider-Man movie, the best one of them all. The 2002 Spider-Man movie starring Tobey Maguire as Peter Parker. How many of you have just curious have seen that? Okay, enough of you to make the illustration work. Many great lines in that movie, but the most memorable came from Uncle Ben soon after his uh, nephew Peter had discovered his superpowers and had beaten up a school bully. Uncle Ben said to Peter, just because you can beat him up doesn't give you the right to. With great power comes great responsibility. I tested Pastor Mike on this yesterday or the day before. I said, Mike, you remember that? I said, what's a line you remember from that movie? He got it right off the bat. With great power comes great responsibility. That's good, Mike, because you were only five years old at the time, right? Yeah. You've remembered that well as you've grown up and grow strong. Good for you. But Paul conveys that same principle in these verses regarding Christian liberty. What Paul is saying in these verses, because he's addressing primarily the strong here, those who are strong in faith, believe they have this greater range of freedom than those with more restrictive consciences do. Paul is saying, in essence, just because you have the freedom to do something in Christ doesn't give you the right to use it in every situation. With great freedom comes great responsibility. And that, in essence, is, is the, the drive here of the text. To exercise Christian liberty without concern for its effect on weaker believers is a violation of the cardinal Christian principle of love. The very thing that Paul has been talking about for the last two chapters. And the point in these verses is this. Christian liberty is to be governed by love. If you, if you forget everything else that said this morning, remember that. Christian liberty is to be governed by love. That's the main principle. And Paul gives us three reasons why our liberty needs to be governed by love. 
I'm going to give them to you in advance, then we'll look through them. First reason is to do it is for the sake of your brother or sister individually. Do it for the sake of your brother or sister in Christ individually. Secondly, he says, do it for the sake of Christ's body corporately. And then thirdly, do it for the sake of God's blessing personally. First of all, we want to let love govern our liberty for the sake of your brother individually. In verse 13, Paul tells meat eaters and vegetarians to stop judging one another. The meat eaters should stop regarding vegetarians as legalistic prudes, and the vegetarians should stop regarding the meat eaters as lawless libertines. And we looked at that last week, so I won't uh, repeat all the details of that message, but the point here is that after admonishing both groups to stop judging one another, Paul turns his attention primarily to the meat eaters, to those who are stronger in faith, those who have a sense of, of greater freedom in Christ to do or not do certain things. Paul says, do not deride weaker believers, but rather decide, that is, resolve or determine never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in front of your brother. Don't deride them. Instead, decide that you will never put a stumbling block or a hindrance in front of them. Spiritually. Paul uses two terms here that I think are really significant. Stumbling block and hindrance. A stumbling block is something that is left carelessly lying around that somebody can trip over. Uh, like I thought like, what happens in our house? And I'm like, when people kick off their shoes and leave them by the door, right? That would be a stumbling block. It's something that it's not intended to trip anybody up, but you're just kind of carelessly leaving it there and somebody could trip over it. A hindrance is something that is deliberately designed to mess somebody up, to get in somebody's way, to hinder them. Uh, the example I thought of, uh, sadly, was, was me doing that in a very physical way with our kids when they were really young. Uh, when I was pastoring a number of years ago in Nova Scotia, our kids were really, really young, and uh, the parsonage had an open floor plan. And I would be sitting in the living room, then there'd be our dining room, our kitchen, the hallway with a wall here, and it formed like a circle. And the kids would at times after dinner, start chasing each other in this circle from the living room into the dining room, into the kitchen, down the hallway, and then back into the living room, they'd run around. Well, I would be sitting in my easy chair, and as they rounded the corner going really fast, I would throw a big object in front of them, deliberately designed to like wipe them out. And I thought it was very entertaining and uh, my wife would scold me saying, honey, stop, somebody is going to get hurt. Likewise, Paul would tell believers who are strong in faith, listen, you need to resolve never to hurt another believer, whether carelessly or intentionally. 
because you're sloppy in your Christian walk and just showing no regard for them, you're being careless about certain things. Or maybe you want to add a certain amount of shock value. You're trying to flaunt your freedom in front of them and disturb them that way. In verse 14, Paul actually sides with the meat eaters theologically. Look at the first part of verse 14 of Romans 14. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. That is to say, Paul agrees with Jesus' statement in Mark 7 when he said, the food that you put into your body cannot defile you. It's what comes out of the heart that defiles you. It's not meat or drink per se. But notice what Paul says says even though he agrees with Jesus that food itself is morally neutral, look what he says in the second half of verse 14. He says, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. And the point is this, if a Jewish believer feels, however wrongly, that certain meats are still unclean and should not be eaten, they are truly unclean for that person as far as his own conscience is concerned. Therefore, for him to partake of such meat, thinking that it's unclean, he's actually sinning against his conscience. You see that? So Paul is siding with the meat eater saying, look, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that, that eating any kind of meat is not going to defile you. But you have some Jewish brothers and sisters or maybe even some Gentiles that, that do feel that way and they really believe that. And therefore, it would be sin for them to do it, not because there's anything wrong with the meat itself, but because it violates their conscience in the matter. And it's always wrong to go against your conscience. They would be sinning by violating their conscience. And, and he actually emphasizes that if you look at the, in the very last verse of the chapter. He says in verse 23, Whoever doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So if they are not confident in their freedom that it's okay to do this, but they rather have a prohibitive conscience, even if their conscience is not calibrated well with Scripture on that issue, they still shouldn't eat because for them it would be sin. So Paul's point to the strong believer, the one who has the freedom to eat whatever, Paul says, if you afflict another believer's conscience by what you eat, you are not walking in love. And here's what he says. He, and he wants to give us a good visual of this. As you consume your food, you're killing your brother. That's what he says. As you consume your food, you are killing your brother spiritually. Look at the second half of verse 15. He says, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. The language suggests that the person that's eating this meat is flaunting or deliberately shocking the weaker brother with an ostentatious display of his Christian freedom. Hey, I know I'm free in Christ. Oh, this bothers you? Well, 
in your face, he just eats it, gorges himself or whatever with the meat, just to prove he's right, with no regard for how his brother feels in his conscience. This brought back to mind something that happened 37 years ago. Another bad example. You may want to fire me as pastor after this. It's like I'm being a horrible example in these things. But the Lord brought to mind something that happened 37 years ago. When I was a junior in high school, my brother was a senior. We both had our driver's license, and we were giving. And one of the, my classmates, a guy the year younger than I was, he was a sophomore, a ride somewhere. I don't know if he needed a ride home or to a game or whatever the deal was. But he just needed a short lift somewhere. We were in our car driving. My brother was, and I was in the front seat. This, this other student, this sophomore, was in the back. And when he got in, my brother popped in a cassette tape. Remember those? He popped in a cassette tape where he had recorded music on it and started playing it. And it was a, uh, what we might call a secular song. Now, I don't remember what song it was. And to my knowledge, there was nothing uh, sinful, sinfully suggestive about the lyrics themselves. But this young man that was sitting behind us uh, was offended by what he was hearing. And uh, we were in a, in a, a church in a school that had uh, some very, very conservative Christians in it. And for some of them, um, to hear any music that was not distinctively Christian, they just, they just had a problem with. So I don't know what the background was with this guy, if it was his upbringing, if certain music reminded him of something, of, of, of a non-Christian past or what the case was, but he was offended by it. And he pol politely asked us to turn it off. And so my brother you know, calmly reached over on the control knob and he turned it up. Kind of an in-your-face, like, that's ridiculous. And uh, I remember thinking at the time, just sitting there, I mean, it was 37 years later, and I remember sitting there at the time just feeling the tension and thinking, man, that was really rude. But I also thought, but it's kind of funny. Like, that was really funny, kind of in your face, like, I don't think I could have done that, but it's kind of funny he did. Paul would say that's not funny at all. It's not funny because you're flaunting your freedom with a total disregard for your brother and his conscience. And Paul says in this passage, the you're destroying your brother for whom Christ died. And the point is this, Christ gave up his life for this brother. You can't give up a song for him. In that situation, the issue was music. In the first century, it was meat. Look at the first part of verse 20. Paul says, Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. I believe the work of God being spoken there describes the fellow believer. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are, as believers, God's what? His workmanship. In Christ Jesus, we are a work of God. He who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. And the second reason I believe the work of God refers uh, to another believer personally is because the second half of verse 20 seems to parallel the first half. Look at what he says. Everything is indeed clean. For instance, food. But it is wrong for anyone to make another, that is another believer, the work of God, stumble by what he eats. 
And Paul reiterates this point in verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So anything includes meat, it includes music, it includes movies, or whatever else. Anything that is not explicitly addressed in Scripture regarding directors, uh, clear directives as to what you should do or should not do. You may have the freedom to do it. Someone else may not have to do the freedom. We're not talking about black and white uh, precepts or principles or commands in Scripture. We're talking about disputable matters. If you have the freedom to do it or not to do certain things, do not flaunt your freedom in front of somebody else who has more sensitive conscience about those issues. You're not following the law of love. You're killing your brother by what you're consuming in that moment. You're flaunting your freedom while killing his conscience. And the point is, we're to love people more than our preferences. And especially when there are fellow believers. So govern your liberty for the sake of your brother. Secondly, for the sake of Christ's body. We're to govern our liberty with love for the sake of our brother individually, but also for the sake of Christ's body corporately. Paul presents this reason in verses 17 to 19 of Romans 14. He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. I think Kent Hughes captures the gist of these verses when he says, quote, the kingdom of God is not mainly a matter of externals, but eternals, end quote. I like that. It's not a matter of externals, food, drink, movies, music, whatever, but of eternals, righteousness, joy, and peace. These, these eternally enduring qualities that characterize those who belong to the kingdom of God. Let's look at them briefly. The first eternal element of God's kingdom is righteousness. In a Sermon on the Mount, Jesus proclaimed, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You know, if I hunger for food, it's because my stomach is empty. And in the same way, those who hunger for righteousness are aware that they need it, but they don't have it within themselves. And then Paul explained this in Romans 3.10, when he quoted the psalmist and said, none is righteous. No, not one. Every single person on planet earth is a sinner who does not have the righteousness required to get into heaven. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, the most religious people, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. And so we have to have a righteousness that is not ours, one that we don't have within ourselves, but one that is given to us by God. And Paul describes this righteousness in Philippians 3 when recounting his own conversion experience. Paul says, I no longer count on my own righteousness by obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous. How? 
through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with Himself depends on faith. That is to say that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, when He walked this earth, lived the perfect life of obedience to God that I should have lived, but I have not lived. Jesus lived that life for me. Not only that, but when Jesus died on the cross, He took on the penalty of my sins and your sins upon Himself, suffering God's righteous wrath against our transgressions. Then three days later, Jesus rose victoriously, miraculously from the grave, proving that as the God-man, He had conquered sin and death for all who would believe in Him. That's good news, is it not? And that's what the word gospel means. It means good news. It is the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. So if we trust in God to save us through the work of His Son, then God will, by our faith in Christ, credit His righteousness to us, just as God credited our sin to Christ when He hung on the cross in our place. That's the message of the gospel. That's how we get the righteousness of God. It's something that we don't have. But if we're aware that we need it and we hunger and thirst for us and we turn to God, God in His mercy will grant it to us. That's good news. And the experience of God's righteousness then produces in us by His Holy Spirit Spirit, a longing for practical holiness. We want to become in practice now what we already are in position. Yes, we are already declared righteous by God, but now I actually want to be like Christ in my thoughts, my attitudes, my words, how I treat other people. As Paul said in another passage, we make it our aim to please Him. That's the goal of the Christian life. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it all to the glory of God. Kingdom of God is not mainly a matter of externals, food, drink, music, movies, and the like, but of eternals, righteousness, peace, and joy. Righteousness is the first eternal element. Peace is the second one. Remember what Paul said in Romans 5.1? We're reviewing the gospel here. Romans 5.1, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified, that is, declared righteous by faith in Christ, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And having peace with God is the key to being at peace with one another. In Colossians 3.15, Paul says, Let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. You see the difference the gospel is supposed to make in our lives? That instead of griping with one another, we are to be grateful for one another. That's how Jesus wants the members of his body, the subjects of his kingdom, to live. Now the third eternal element in God's kingdom in verse 17 is what? Righteousness, peace, and joy. This is the outward mark of Christ's presence. 
Uh, Queen Elizabeth has been in the news a lot lately as she has celebrated 70 years on the throne. I think it's, I think someone told me it's the longest reigning monarch or sovereign in world history. I mean, this is incredible. 70 years as the sovereign of England. And uh, people have been trying to catch a glimpse of her to show up at Buckingham Palace or one of the other royal palaces or whatever to, to see if they can catch a glimpse of the queen. What's interesting is that the royal standard represents the sovereign and the United Kingdom. And the royal standard is flown over the royal palace when the queen is in residence. It signifies that she's there, that she's resident there in the building. And I don't know where this original quote comes from, but as you look at that picture, an author from England wrote, Joy is the flag that flies over the castle of our hearts announcing that the king is in residence today. Isn't that good? Joy is the flag that flies over the castle of our hearts announcing that the king is in residence today. It is the outward mark of Christ's presence. Not just like walking around with a grin on your face. It's a quality that characterizes your relationships within the body of Christ. Righteousness, peace, and joy. Christians who are empowered by the Holy Spirit are filled with these eternal qualities. For them, food and drink aren't what matter. They could really care less about those things. What matters to them is advancing God's kingdom. Jesus is their sovereign Lord, and they serve Him by pursuing what makes for peace in the mutual upbeating of their fellow citizens of God's kingdom, building them up in the Lord. When believers serve Christ in this way, Paul says in verse 18, they please God and they find approval with their fellow believers. So Christian liberty is to be governed by love. Why? For the sake of your brother individually, for the sake of Christ's body corporately, and thirdly, for the sake of God's blessing personally. Verse 22. The faith that you have Keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. In other words, if you have the freedom, enjoy it. But enjoy it between yourself and God. Don't flaunt it in front of someone else because then you'll be condemned by something that actually was acceptable to God and was approved. So when Paul says keep your faith between yourself and God, he's not talking about your gospel witness. In that sense, we're to share our faith with everyone. The Bible says preach the gospel to the whole creation. So yes, share your faith, the Christian faith, with others. But in this context, your faith refers to your personal conviction about certain issues. What your faith allows you or doesn't allow you to do. And in this case, it's addressing the gray areas of the Christian life. And Paul's message is don't flaunt your freedom or fight to convince others that your stance is right and theirs is wrong. Paul says if you do that, you're not going to be blessed. Because that's not what it's about. 
One commentator said, I like this way of summarizing it. He says, one way to avoid unnecessary offense is to stop talking so much. When it's over a disputable matter, just shut up. Don't keep talking about it as if you're right and those who disagree with you are wrong. The path to blessing is not proving that you're right. The path to blessing is pursuing what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. In verse 23, Paul turns his attention to those who have a more restrictive conscience. He says, But whoever has doubt is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So one way to miss out on God's blessing, let's say if you're the stronger believer who has certain freedoms, is to to flaunt that or to fight to convince others that you're right and they're wrong. But in this verse, Paul suggests that another way to miss out on God's blessing is simply to go against your conscience. Something that is not sin in and of itself, according to Scripture, is still sin for you if it violates your conscience. So continue to educate yourself by the Word of God. Make sure that your conscience is calibrated with Scripture. But whatever the case, make sure that you do not violate your conscience because whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. You should never, ever go against your conscience no matter who pressures you to do so. And remember that classmate? that felt convicted by the song my brother and I were listening to? Well, when my brother turned it up instead of turning it off, remember I said there was a tension? Well, he was silent for about 20 or 30 seconds. And then he asked if we would simply let him out of the car. And we did. We did. As a result my brother and I missed out on God's blessing because we had mistreated a Christian brother. But he was blessed because he refused to compromise his conviction. It wasn't about the music. It was about sticking to the convictions he had in his conscience. He was blessed because he kept a clear conscience before God. Brothers and sisters, we are a diverse bunch. Therefore, we are going to disagree on matters from time to time. Things that are not explicitly spelled out in Scripture, and that's okay. But remember this. How we treat one another in those moments of disagreement is the true test of our Christian love. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we love your word. As we recounted, as we actually recited earlier in our service, at the very outset of the service, great are your works studied by all who delight in them. We study them, we delight in them, we remember them. And Lord, so we thank you for this truth that we have received this morning. Help us to take it to heart. Help us to make things right where we have been wrong. 
and help us to walk in love even as you have loved us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.